Good morning, everyone. Scripture reading for the sermon today is going to be in the Gospel of Luke. So if you want to turn there as I read it, I'm going to be reading Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. And in your Pew Bible, this passage is on pages 855 and 856. So again, reading Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be named Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's a wonderful time of the year, and it's a real joy to be able to look out here and see um, so many family members, extended family that's here visiting, um, some, some of our church family that uh, is back. It's just a, a wonderful time, and uh, it's a joy to share it with you. I uh, hope that if you don't have other plans that you'll come out tonight, again at 6 o'clock. Um, these are always uh, special times to, to gather like we do, to uh, hear God's word and to sing his praises, to hear some special music and uh, a little message that will focus our hearts even more uh, solidly on our Savior. So come out again tonight um, at 6 o'clock. I hope that you're still in the Gospel of Luke. I need to turn there. My Bible naturally falls open to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, but we'll take a break um, to look at this really special passage here in Luke chapter 1. And um, <clears throat> I want to just wish you a very Merry Christmas. I really mean that, and I mean it so much that that's the title that I've given to my sermon today, uh, A Very Merry Christmas. Only thing is, Mary is spelled M-A-R-Y. Um, there's a lot of adjectives that people like to pair with the word Christmas, and each of them kind of express a different hope for the holidays. So Burl Ives uh, wants you to have a holly jolly Christmas. I'm not exactly sure what that entails, but I get the idea. Or maybe you're like Bing Crosby and you're really wishing for a white Christmas. If that's your dream, it looks like you're going to have to keep dreaming. Um, but far and away, the most common adjective that's used with the word Christmas is Mary, M-E-R-R-Y. And folks want to wish you that. Folks want you to have, you know, the hap, hap, happiest Christmas ever. 
They hope that you'll be cheerful and bright and that all of your troubles will be out of sight and so on and so forth. And I suppose that's a fine thing for people to wish for you and for you to wish for other people, but it isn't very realistic, is it? Let's just be honest with ourselves. It's, we live in a, in a fallen and broken world, and it's not only possible, it's actually very probable that Christmas Eve will find you maybe sick physically or in your heart. That Christmas Eve will find you sorrowful, perhaps at the, the loss of a, a loved one. Perhaps your heart is, heart is aching because your loved one is unable to be home with you this Christmas. Um, any, all sorts of scenarios that we could describe that are heartbreaking and difficult. And it's, my point is that it's very hard to be cheerful when you have no idea for example, how you're going to pay for all of this once January rolls around. Um, I think it's a tad unrealistic for, for people to expect that we can just kind of plaster a smile on our face and take a cup of cheer. We can't all have a Merry Christmas, M-E-R-R-Y. But it seems to me that we can all have a Merry Christmas, M-A-R-Y. And what I mean by that is this Christmas, whether it's happy or uh, whether it's a hard one for you, we can follow the lead of that blessed young woman who gave birth to our Savior some 2,000 years ago. Now, over the last two millennia, there's, a, there's been a lot of fantasy and falsity that's been developed about the Virgin Mary especially, may I say, in the Roman Catholic tradition. And so it's, it's necessary that we would try to separate fact from all of the fiction. And I want to just assure you that all of the facts about Mary are much more marvelous and they're much more motivating than anything anyone has ever invented about her. Uh, her character is displayed throughout this Christmas story but especially, I think, in the passage that Nathan just read for us a few minutes ago from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, it's best seen. Her character is most clearly and beautifully seen in this exchange between her and the angel Gabriel. So how can one describe Mary as we discover her here in this passage? And I think it, I can give it to you in one phrase. I'm, I'm going to try anyway. And it's a phrase that has three words in it. I'm going to describe Mary to you as humble, thoughtful, and submissive. Hers is a humble, thoughtful submission. And if you take any one of those words, um, it describes her well. But then I think if you take all three of them together, you would have uh, something that is very merry. Okay, this is so merry, these things. And if we were to follow her example, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, put these things into practice, then we would also have a very merry Christmas. No matter what particular providences we happen to be experiencing at the time. So let's just take a closer look at each word of that phrase as we work through this text. And we'll start with the word humble humble. Now to be humble 
is to have a, a modest, which is to say an accurate, assessment or estimate of your own importance. The opposite of that, of course, is pride, and that involves an inflated estimate of your own worth. I think it's very important that we accurately assess ourselves because all of our expectations are, are actually calibrated according to how we assess ourselves. So whether you're talking about the presents that you expect to receive on Christmas morning, or maybe you're thinking about the, the providences, the circumstances that you expect the Lord to give to you in the next year, I submit to you that all of those expectations are going to be in keeping with your self-assessment. It'll be, your, your expectation is going to be based on how worthy you think you are. You know, Santa asks us if we've been good little boys and girls. And if so, if we've been good, then the implication is that we'll get a, a lot of presents. We deserve those. And if not, then we get lumps of coal. And this is how you know, sorry to spoil this for you, some of you kids. This is how you know that Santa is a figment of man's imagination. Because that way of thinking is very human. Right? We have a natural proclivity to, to what you might call works righteousness. We have a natural proclivity to pride. And that's a deadly combination, pride and works righteousness, because it leads us to believe ourselves worthy of receiving only good things at the hand of God. Because that's what we, that's what we think that we deserve, only, only the good stuff. Now, before we see Mary's self-assessment, we might first acknowledge how others assess her. And again, I'm referring in particular to Roman Catholic theology. And the official doctrine of that church holds to the immaculate conception of Mary, which is the belief that this young woman was born without the stain of original sin and that she lived her life without committing any sin they see evidence for this in our in our passage if you can believe it especially verse 28 where the angel gabriel greets mary in a particular way uh, he says uh, according to their translation hail mary full of grace that's how they like to render it and in this way of thinking mary is is full of grace the same way that you might be, I don't know, full of eggnog, you know? Just Mary is up to her eyeballs in, in goodness and in merit and in grace, so much so that she actually has extra that, that can be dispensed to other people who are lacking in it. Now, I'm positive that Mary would be appalled by what the Roman Catholic Church says about her. This is not at all her own assessment. When God's messenger, Gabriel, comes to her, she is greatly troubled. She's terrified, in fact. And, and that is not how you would respond if you were a sinless, almost angelic being yourself. Right? That, that doesn't make sense. If, if, the, if the traditional depictions of Mary 
were accurate, you know, if she kind of, ha you, you've seen her with her halo and the sort of aura around her. Um, if, if Gabriel came to her in that condition, she would have felt very comfortable with Gabriel, her angelic equal. No, a person is greatly troubled. A person is terrified when they're confronted with a holy angel who is the spokesperson for a holy God because that person instantly acknowledges and recognizes the great chasm there is because of their sin and unrighteousness. In her song later on in this chapter, Mary is going to declare her need of a savior. She's going to be praising the Lord primarily for his mercy, which is his compassion, his unmerited grace towards those who stand in desperate need of it. That's Mary. This is Mary's humble assessment of herself. She's hungry, she's poor, she's needy, she's desperate that God would save her. And Gabriel comforts her with the assurance that the Lord is, in fact, dealing with her according to grace. This is what the O favored one really means in verse 28. Not that she's intrinsically full of grace by her own merits, but that she is graced by God, okay? And that's based on his mercy. And again, in verse 30, Gabriel says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And just to be very clear, to avoid potential conclusion, I think a better way to render this would be the grace of God, the, the favor of God has found you, Mary. It's, it's coming from God, and it's resting on Mary. It's not welling up within Mary herself. So Mary's humility is not found primarily in the fact that she's a young woman, you know, likely in her mid-teens, and in that society without any kind of real status, and neither is her humility found primarily in the fact that she's from this podunk Galilean town called Nazareth. Though the insignificance of both of those things, I think, is significant to the story. But I'm saying to you that Mary's humility is best seen by her, her bewilderment that she, a sinner would be the recipient of such grace and such mercy from God. So this is the very first way that you can have a very merry Christmas, and that's by adopting this same kind of Marian humility that dispels any kind of notion of deserving and really just kind of marvels at the mercy and compassion of God. Mary is humble. And she's also thoughtful, thoughtful. I, th I think it's fair to say that most people kind of go through life almost like zombies. Um, you see them with blank looks in their eyes. If that is, if you even see their eyes at all, most of the time people's eyes are just cast down, they're glued to their phones. And people seem content to just kind of go through the motions to simply accept uncritically whatever is told to them. 
people, it seems to me, um, by and large, are just merely existing. And that's no way to live. That's no way to experience Christmas. And once again, Mary stands as a wonderful example to us of what it looks like to be thoughtful. And by thoughtful, I mean that her heart and her mind are always engaged. We see this right from the beginning, don't we? Even as Gabriel is um, greeting her as being uh, graced by God, Mary, her, her mind's going, she's trying to discern what kind of greeting this might be. That's in verse 29. She, she understands this is not your standard encounter. This is not a typical greeting, especially, as we've seen, given that hum given that real divide between sinners and a holy God. So, again, right away, the, the wheels are, are turning in Mary's mind. She's thinking. And we see this even more memorably nine months later. So if you just turn the page and look at chapter 2, verse 19, after Jesus is born, after the shepherds report all that they have seen and all that they have heard, we read that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So Matt, uh, Luke is, is describing this young woman for us as, as thoughtful. She's a, she's a thinker, and not just a thinker, but she's a treasurer. Mary's not just someone who is always kind of exercising her brain. She is someone who's always engaging her heart. But the thinking and the believing that I want to focus on has to do with what Gabriel announced to Mary. And this is another instance, I think, in which our familiarity with this story and from the facts of it really kind of detracts from the impact that this is meant to make on us. Look at verse 31. The word behold is meant to wake us up to the, the stupendousness of what is about to happen, what's coming. Behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And even more stupendous than this are the details of who this Jesus is and what he will be. For starters, Gabriel says he will be great. And if that's not the, you know, the understatement of the millennium, I don't know what is. Jesus is great, and his greatness is tied to his genealogy. Gabriel goes on to say, he will be called the son of the most high God. Again, that is stupendous. That is mind-blowing. Gabriel is announcing to Mary that she's going to be carrying divinity in her womb. This is something that her cousin Elizabeth recognizes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when Mary goes to visit her. And when Elizabeth greets Mary, she says in verse 43, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? This Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of the most high God. She's going to carry him in her womb. But Gabriel also alludes to Jesus' humanity. 
So he's going to be born of this human Mary, and he's going to be accounted through his earthly father's line, which is the house of David. And in fulfillment of many, many Old Testament prophecies like um, 2 Samuel 7 or Daniel 7, um, Jesus is not just going to be a Messiah, but he's going to be a king. He will be given the throne of his father, David, his, his great, great, great ancestor, David, who up to this point in Israel's history is their most beloved king. There's never been a king like King David. But Jesus' rule promises to be even greater than David's because of his kingdom, it is said, there will be no end. So you'll have to excuse this, this phrase here, but 31 to 33 in this passage, that's a pretty pregnant paragraph, right? Gabriel is telling this young woman that she's going to conceive and bear a son who is truly God and truly man and who's going to be a great king over an everlasting kingdom. Now, it's very important that you would be thoughtful about this. And especially uh, if you're a person that's here today who's not even really sure why you're here. Maybe someone invited you. You just know that this is a special time of year and a spiritual time, perhaps, and it's, it seems like an appropriate time to be in church. And that's great. We're, we're very glad that you're here. And I think it is a perfect time to give serious consideration to who Jesus is. Here's what people who are not particularly thoughtful or discerning say about Jesus. And maybe you've heard something like this. They, they'll, they'll say, Jesus, he was a good example. You know, he's someone to, to look up to. He's, um, he's a revolutionary, other people will say, who stood up against the, the status quo. People say Jesus was a good teacher. Well, 80 years ago, a, a British author uh, named C.S. Lewis did a series of talks on BBC Radio, and that later became the book Mere Christianity. It became a classic. It's a great book. It's very helpful for those who want to think carefully and thoughtfully about who Jesus really is and about what faith in him uh, is going to look like. And in that book, C.S. Lewis writes this. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of, of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just a good anything. 
Gabriel tells us that he's great. He's great. Jesus is not a mere man. He's the son of the most high God. He's the Messiah. Jesus doesn't just kind of speak out against the ruling class. He is the ruling class. We proclaim to you today that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. This is, this is who we call upon you to believe in today. The Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us to live the, the kind of life that we were meant to live but couldn't possibly live and then to die the death that we deserve to die in our place as our substitute so that we could be forgiven and so that we could be restored to a right relationship with God through faith in him and through full confidence and trust in the finished work of Christ in our place and on our behalf. And the good news of the gospel is that three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he even right now rules and reigns. And as we've sung already today, he shall reign forevermore. He rules and reigns as the king of an everlasting kingdom. And we invite you today there couldn't be a better day to do this than to call upon the name of the Lord and to so be saved. And if you would like to know more about how you can do that, if you want to know more about who this Jesus is and what he has done and how it is that you might believe upon his name, then we would invite you to just come to this front pew at the end of the service and there would be folks there that would love to point you to the Savior and to pray with you. In the meantime, let's just check back in with Mary here. And it seems from, from verse 34 that she got tripped up way back when Gabriel said in verse 31, you shall conceive in your womb. So, so Mary asks in verse 34, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And I'm telling you that this is Mary being thoughtful. Submission is coming. That's our third point, which we'll arrive at very shortly. But I want you to understand just from the outset that it's not going to just be a, a simple submission. Hers is a humble, thoughtful submission. And I, I really want you to understand this, that your call to, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not a demand that you first check your brains at the door. Okay? That, that's what a lot of people think Christianity is. What's required of you is not a, a blind faith. Rather, Christianity is a perfectly reasonable faith. That's not to say that there's no mystery to wrestle with. And that's certainly not to say that there's nothing in it of the miraculous because there's plenty of both of those things. But it is to say that the Christian faith is, as many people have said down through the ages, a thinking person's religion. Somewhere along the line, I learned the distinction between asking a question and questioning. There's a difference between just asking a question and questioning. The former stems, stems from just simple ignorance. The latter 
from, from doubt or cynicism or criticism. And the, the difference between the two, I think, is really illustrated well in this chapter, Luke chapter 1. Because in the, the larger context here, Luke is alternating between two stories. Two stories of prophecy and fulfillment about two different births. The first has to do with John the Baptist, and the second has to do with Jesus. That's what we're focused on today. And there's lots of interesting contrasts and com comparisons that we could see between those two stories. But for our purposes, and for the sake of time, I'll just draw your attention to a couple points of comparison and contrast. And the first is that in both cases, the birth announcement was made by the mighty angel Gabriel. And one appearance was to a high-status man, a priest, by the name of Zechariah. The other was to a low-status virgin. Both, both births were going to be miraculous. The first, because um, John's mother, Elizabeth, was old and barren. And in the second case, because the mother was a virgin. And in, both, and in both cases, a question followed the announcement. Here's Zacharias, and you can look here in verse 18, when Gabriel announced the birth of the miraculous forthcoming birth of his son. Zechariah says in verse 18, How shall I know this? For I am an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. I love. I just love that. Um, he's fine with calling himself old, but he doesn't dare say that about his wife. He's he's quite a bit more delicate uh, how he describes his wife. But the point is, they're they're both. Well, his his wife is way past childbearing age, and she wasn't even able to conceive when she had when she was of those years so how that's what Zechariah wants to know and for this for this I'm sure maybe you know the story the mighty angel Gabriel unleashes a severe punishment on the man he renders him mute he's not allowed to speak until the day that his child is born in fulfillment of the word that Gabriel spoke because he did not believe the words that the angel spoke. And now in verse 38, we find Mary asking, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And so we kind of brace ourselves and we're like, uh, you know, steady, steady on <laughs> Mary. Watch it. We're kind of waiting for Gabriel's rebuke and for his punishment for her unbelief, except that never comes. How do you account for that? Is, is Gabriel just kind of easier on, on women or on young people? No, it's because there's a crucial difference between Mary's question and Zechariah's questioning. Mary believes with all her heart that what the angel is telling her is true, but she just needs a little help with the, the how. Zechariah asks, how can this thing be? And he's citing the impossibility of the thing. He, he's revealing his doubts about the whole thing. But Mary asks, how will this be? 
And notice the assumption there. She assumes that this will be. She's, she's only just curious to ask how. Um, and you can kind of, you can sense her reticence. It's, it's going to be like a, uh, how? Since I've, I've never, you know, I'm not, I've not married yet. I've never, you know. And again, that's not an expression of doubt. That's an expression of belief. She says, this will be, just how, coupled with a desire for just a few more details. And it, it occurs to me that there, there may be someone here today with the identical question that Mary had. How is a virgin going to be able to conceive? And I want to just let you know that you are certainly welcome to wonder about that. You know, we're calling on you to believe, but you're not being asked to, to do so blindly, you know, or brainlessly. That, that's a reasonable question that you would want to ask. And here's the explanation. It's a reasonable explanation, even if it remains for you and for me incomprehensible. And, and that's just the thing. You're going you're gonna to have to engage your brain but at the same time, you're going to have to recognize that your brain is the size of a pea compared to the mind of God. And consequently, your ideas of what are, what's going to be plausible, that's going to be severely limited if you make your mind or the mind of man your standard. Here, here's what Gabriel tells Mary. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the child conceived in you is going to be called Holy, the Son of God. Suffice it to say that this is not going to be any kind of ordinary conception. It's going to be by the power of God and by the mysterious operation of the Holy Spirit. If Ecclesiastes chapter 11 verse 5 is, is right, which says that, you know, the ordinary conception and development of a child in the womb is shrouded in mystery to us. How much more so when that conception is extraordinary, when it is by the Holy Spirit, whose ways you cannot trace, but you can only see like the wind. Let's just, uh, let's move to our third and final point, which We'll tie the phrase back together. I'm saying that Mary's is a humble, thoughtful submission. So let's look at submission. And that's, an, that's another one of these words that's not very popular in our day, is it? To submit means to joyfully yield to the will of another. And that proves extremely difficult in, in our independent age. Whether we have to submit to our parents or to our boss or to the government or to a husband, we don't like how that makes us feel. It makes us feel a bit like a slave. And in our estimation, that's about the worst thing that you could possibly be. But Mary, this humble godly young woman is a model of, of faith and accept, 
acceptance and submission of what and what those truly look like. I want you to just listen again to her beautiful response in verse 38. She says, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What, a, what an expression of humble, simple faith. So beautiful. And please, when I say simple, I hope you don't hear me saying simplistic. This is not a simplistic faith. Remember, Mary is thoughtful. So of course she's aware of the difficulty of this path that's been laid out for her. She knows, for example, the, the societal costs of showing up pregnant when you're only betrothed to a man. Okay, she, she knows that, that maybe that's going to result in divorce from her fiancé. Maybe that's going to, in stricter societies, it would require the death penalty. Mary understands all of this right away, and yet she, she counts all of that as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. And for the sake of obeying her God. She hears the word of God. She believes the word of God. And she gives herself to doing the word of God. Considering herself a, a handmaiden. And that, that word there is put in there kind of just to soften uh, the force of the original. And the word there literally is slave. She views herself as a slave to God, her master. And she's ready and willing to do his will. And friends, this is how you have a Merry Christmas. No matter how difficult your present circumstances. One of our own poets has written, When, uh, when I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, Speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And unintentionally, that poet is exactly right. This is the wisdom of Mary, the mother of our Lord. Let it be. Let it be to me. Lord, have your way in me. Accomplish your great purposes through me. I am your slave. To say, let it be, is not to kind of reluctantly resign yourself to your fate. It is to actively participate in what God has purposed for you. It's, it's for you to give a hearty amen. That's what amen means. It means let it be, so be it. It's to give a hearty amen to God's will for your life, even if what he has willed for you is going to be extremely difficult. And this isn't just the wisdom of Mary. It's the way of her son. That Jesus comes into the world determined to do the will of the one who sent him. And it was far from easy. You've, you've seen that meme, right? Where um, two pictures, one is how it started and the other one is how it's going. And most of the time there's a, there's a real contrast between the two not so with Jesus for, for Jesus those pictures are similar it starts bad it starts in a manger in a stable 
under death threats. He's on the run. And it, it ends, how it's going is, it, it, it all ends in a, on a Roman cross, a cruel torture device. But this was according to the express purpose and will of God. That was for us and for our salvation. And for Jesus, the, the prospects of this death were excruciating. And I'm talking like bloody sweat inducing excruciating. But he says to his father, essentially, let it be to me according to your word. Can you say that this morning? Is this true of you? That you hear the word of God? That you believe the word of God? Not doubting. Maybe you have some, some questions, but you're not doubting. You are trusting. You're believing you have faith. Are you a doer of the word and not a mere hearer deceiving yourself? Think about this. What, what is he calling you to do right now? What is God's will for your life right now? That thing that came to mind. Do it. Do it. He's the master. You're the servant. Let the amen sound from his people again. Let us be known, friends, by our humble, thoughtful submission to the will and to the word of God. I guess what I'm saying to you, friends, is I wish you all a very merry Christmas. Amen? Amen. amen.